0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley.
1: And my name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on Station KLA. Our guest for this 412th show is Dr. Larissa Catt-Tracy, Professor of Medieval Literature at Longwood University. And we're going to be talking about execution and exile in medieval and early modern Europe. Our history buffs are Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. Terry, start us off.
2: Yes. Yeah, Kat, I'd like to talk about the punishment of shaming. And was that unique to certain areas during the Middle Ages? And would you call that maybe a, a precursor to like shunning or to exile? I wouldn't call it a precursor, it's kind of form and function of the same thing. Um, if we're talking about shaming, public, a lot of public punishments were meant to be shaming in and of themselves. So, for instance, a lot of people look at the stocks or the pillory and they think that that's torture, but it wasn't. It was actually a form of punishment that was meant to humiliate the person who's already been found guilty of something. And so if you are forced to stand in a pillory with your head and your hands in that wooden brace for three hours while people pelted you with rotten food, that is entirely a process of shaming. And if you are in the stocks where you're sitting down and it's your feet that are in there, it's the same thing. It hurts and you get sore after a while and sometimes, you know, you might be dehydrated, but it's meant to be shaming. And that becomes a function of reputation. In the Middle Ages, particularly in the 13th and 14th century, there are records of people whose reputations are used against them in courts of law as actual evidence. So if you are humiliated or you commit a crime that demands public punishment, it's not always about inflicting pain. It's about destroying your reputation or pointing out that you are not an honest and trustworthy trustworthy person that you have a public of fama your public reputation has been tarnished or has been damaged and so there is a there's a consistent use of public humiliation and shaming throughout Medieval Law. It doesn't matter where you are. And that can actually be used against you in a court of law. And something like in cases of adultery, I mean, anyone who's seen Season 5 of Game of Thrones when <laughs> Sears walks naked, walks naked through King's Landing and we're all sitting here going, all right, that's fine, that's for the adultery, but what about the treason? And we were all <laughs> hoping she would be beheaded, but of course, no, she blows up <laughs> <laughs> what they do to her is an actual 13th century punishment that's recorded in the Custom d'Engine in southern France for adultery for both the men and the women who are caught committing adultery. Now, they have to be caught. And by caught, I mean they have to be caught at it. They have to be caught in flagrante d'electo by at least two judges. And they have to be taken immediately And if the man could run away, then he might get off without any kind of penalty, but the woman would be punished anyway. But if they're both caught, the lovers would be bound back to back and forced to walk through the town naked as people hurled insults at them, rang bells at them, pelted them with rotten vegetables, and basically yelled, shame! rather like Circe has to endure in King's Landing. But then that becomes a kind of a permanent mark of their reputation. And so the whole point of humiliation and shame is to undermine that person's standing, legally speaking.
0: Okay, Ed. Um, yeah, can you uh, expand, on, um, expand on what you just told us in terms of how women were treated as opposed to men? And if they were exiled, um, you know, when you talked about that in the radio portion of the show, mostly you talked about, you know, male professions. Um, was this worse for women than for men? Um,
2: you know, honestly, now that you've asked that question, I don't know that I've come upon any instances of women being exiled, at least not exiled alone. In Volsunga Saga, the old Norse Icelandic saga, Gudrun is married off against her will and that becomes a form of exile um depending on of course the culture women would often be asked who they wanted to marry and whether they agreed to it but a woman could be exiled by being married off against her will and she would be sent away i mean she would be sent to a different community a different people and that's what happens in Volsunga Saga. Now, of course, she retaliates by um, basically murdering her children by her forced husband and feeding them to him, you know, as dinner, as you do. As you do. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> as you do. Yeah. Yeah. As wow. Medea showed yeah. us
1: how to do that. Yeah. I mean, come um, on, Medea.
2: <laughs> Well, Medea doesn't cook them. Medea kills her children by Jason, and basically he asks for it because he marries a younger woman, and those children would have been dead at probably their stepmother's hands anyway. I mean, there's a reason we have evil stepmothers in fairy tales. Right, right.
0: There's a consistency. But in in,
2: in that instance, women could be exiled in terms of forced marriage. Um, But we don't see that many cases of women being punished by being exiled alone. Now, some women might go on pilgrimage, and that would be a voluntary exile, or they might take up residence as an voluntarily, and that's for religious asceticism rather than um, actual punishment.
0: Okay. Um, I need to bring this into a modern sense because I'm classicaled out. Uh, I'm going to take the death of someone and put on a reality and then apply it to classical. The rotten scoundrel G. Gordon Liddy died a couple last week. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because there was a scoundrel by all means, and yet he was able to, over time, recreate his image where, I hate to say it, as much as my family despised him, there are people that were interested and found salvation in his life and his awful radio show. Is there someone in classical literature who has been Punished and did the exile. And yet, you know, somehow in story, or they come along and were able to rewrite their story again and have a better ending near their death than they did in their earlier
2: life. Dante? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, that, I'm, that, well, I'm talking, I mean, I, I am talking, who, he, but he who, ends up, he, he, he is exiled anyway, though. He never sees redemption in the end, if I recall. He is hated till he no,
2: dies. No, he does not. No. And in medieval circumstances, generally, you would not be reintegrated into that, the society. Once okay. you're gone, you're gone.
0: Okay, so it, the scar is there. There is no repentance.
2: Yes, but, by and large. Um, there may have been other instances, but for the most part, if you were permanently exiled, you were permanently exiled in the old North Icelandic text, again, if you got the if you got the um sentence of three years outlawry, if you went and you went Viking, which is a part-time summer job, not an ethnic identity <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> right. if, you, if you went and did some summer raiding and and you found and you you found a place to stay for three years in the Isle of Man or in the Hebrides or the Shetlands or in Ireland and you went back to Iceland, then yes, you would be reintegrated into society. But for the most part, um, the sagas, I would say the, the Niall saga does end with that kind of redemption. And what happens is both uh, Flossi and Kari who are responsible for some of this feud, they are both kind of on in itself, but they're exiled, they leave Iceland, then they eventually both take a pilgrimage to Rome. And then they return to Iceland after many, 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 many years, and they are reconciled. So that does happen in some, in, to some literary characters, but it depends on whether the law allows it. And Icelandic law does.
1: Well, and, and I was thinking of a, of a historical character. It's not necessarily reintegration, but if you think of someone like Eric the Red um eric's solution to being outlawed was to simply go to another island and then perpetrate the the world's first mass um uh landscape or real estate fraud right. by by you know getting all these people to show up at greenland and and you know yeah. eric turns out Okay, in that deal, I'm not sure the folks who came necessarily. His son did.
0: Leaf didn't do that well either, but you know. But I,
1: so <laughs> I mean, in that sense, you kind of have a situation where, and I'm thinking of some Sea Kings who did the same thing, who were exiled and were happy to to set up shop in the Isle of Lewis and kind of make that their new home, and you know. So, so you didn't necessarily always turn out badly depending on who you were and, and right. what you had, but you were still the exile still mattered. I think would right. that be correct, Cat?
2: Absolutely. And, of course, the examples you just gave are Icelandic examples. And so, of course, Icelandic law, again, allows for it. So if you're talking about somebody who might be exiled, a historical personage, um, Charlemagne exiles Pepin, his son, for treason. And that's actually one of the points when you talk about his execution of Ganolin in the Song of Roland. Historically speaking... Charlemagne didn't exile. Did not execute that many people. In fact, he rarely executed people. He would exile them. So he exiles his son Pepin, and then relents and lets him back in.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, um, you have a question. Yeah, I do. Um, so I, I'm kind of interested in the um, the transition as we go from the early modern and and this change that happens that that's in some cases religiously driven um talk a little bit about why execution in particular becomes such a a uh, a weapon of the state as, and i'm thinking more in terms of of its propaganda value than i am in terms of of as a punishment or or a uh, just a pure deterrence
2: well, in terms of propaganda, I mean, once we get to the Reformation, and of course, by at, after the Reformation in fifteen seventeen, everyone's a heretic. So, if you're going to if you're going to ferret somebody out for some kind of crime, you might as well make it good. And the consolidation of the power in the kingship, like Henry the Eighth, Henry the Eighth did have a lot of people executed. And the public executions of the 16th and then the 17th century were meant to be public reaffirmations of state power. They were essentially the the power and authority of the king, and the absolute figure of the king was written on the body of the criminal. And there are pamphlets that circulate in the 16th and 17th centuries as murderers are are giving those scaffold speeches or they are um, standing up there in front of a full crowd before they're hanged because hanging is actually the most common form of execution. It, in most places it's hanging. Beheading is reserved for specific crimes and specific people. If you were nobility and you committed treason you could get beheaded. If you were really important you might be beheaded in private. Um, or if you were somebody like William Wallace, you'd be hanged, drawn, and quartered, which means you'd be hanged until partially strangled, taken down, put onto a table. You'd be disemboweled and castrated while you were still alive, and your entrails would be burned in front of you while you're still alive, and then they would cut off your head to do you a favor.
0: When you're and, still alive, yes.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, yes, <Yeah, yeah. laughs> until you're no longer still alive once it's
0: <laughs> Boy, they really yes. push that theme still alive, don't they? They, yeah. do.
2: they do. And and I mean if you can if you, and if you can stand it, good for you. Um, <laughs> right. it, it didn't happen very often. And those were the really spectacular medieval executions because again, it was the worst possible traitors and the authority of the state is being enacted on the body of the criminal. In the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries though, you do have that propaganda but then you also get reverse propaganda when the criminals are allowed to speak for themselves. And there's a whole body of pamphlets that are written from the perspective of the criminal, and that sometimes make the criminal seem very sympathetic and very repentant. And so you then get the whole spiritual idea of redemption on the scaffold speech. So the executions in the early modern period start to serve multiple avenues of propaganda, not just that of the authority of the king, but also the potential for Christian salvation, or the potential for gendered redemption in the case of women who murdered their husbands or murdered their children. Uh, My colleague Diane Berg writes on this, and there's an entire body of literature that creates a lasting spectacle of the scaffold, and all of it is tied to both assumptions and illusions of power as much as it is to redemption and reintegration, well, not reintegration, because they're dead, but that idea of redemption.
0: Well, I'm, I am was, I was hoping they'd find some sort of literary artifact that William Wallace was like, scared, uh, fainted
1: at the sight of blood. I mean, something to come,
2: I can promise you that he didn't shout freedom. <laughs> right, right. right they cut off. And I was going
1: to say, and, and that's part of what she's talking about because the pamphlets are are propaganda pieces in and of themselves. So you can have, you know, individuals. I'm thinking of Charles, who's ex- executed uh, the English King and, you know, Charles the first, yeah, 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 you have this, yeah. this wonderful story of, you know, he makes this impassioned speech and, and I was wonderful and I, you know, I, I didn't mean to hurt anybody and blah, blah, blah. And, and there's no way to really be sure that he said any of that, you know, I mean, right. Oliver
0: Cromwell <laughs> kind of disagreed with him. Yeah, yes.
1: I mean, you know, so, so, you know, propaganda is propaganda regardless of which side you're, you're operating on. <laughs> right.
2: Well, exactly, and, and the reverse propaganda of that, because Charles I was executed in 1649, and um, Catherine Phillips, who was a royalist poet at the time, during the Commonwealth, after the Restoration in 1660, when Charles II comes back, she actually writes a poem where she talks about the dual murder, the dual execution of Charles I, And the fact that not only has his body been executed and killed, but people are defaming him and trying to ruin his reputation. And his vengeance, his son, Charles II, when he comes back in the Restoration, he has Cromwell dug up. Because Cromwell died of natural causes in 1659, and he more or less screwed up the country with the whole Commonwealth thing and Puritanism and, well, the Irish Hate him for a good reason. A lot lot of good reasons, yes. (laughs) A lot of good reasons, and he he dies of natural causes. He had himself buried as a king in the chapel at the crypt of the chapel of the Order of the Garter in Westminster Abbey. So the man who overthrows the monarchy has himself buried like a king, and tries to install his son as his successor, and Parliament went, you know what, we got one of those, Charles, would you like to come back? <laughs> and when he comes back, he has Cromwell's corpse dug up, has the corpse dragged on a hurdle to Tyburn Gallows, and the corpse has been embalmed, and there was an autopsy because there are records of this. The corpse is hung because animate objects are hanged, inanimate objects are hung, and the corpse is hung then it's dismembered the body parts are buried at the base of tyburn gallows and it's decapitated and the head is stuck on a spike on top of parliament house where it stayed for 30 years until a windstorm broke the pike it falls to the ground and supposedly a passing sentry picks up the head spike included and tucks it under his arm, takes it home, and starts charging admission. <laughs> you
0: know, you gotta make a buck somewhere. We would like That's to... Right. D- and, in, and in
2: 1935, it was given to the Royal College of Physicians who compared it to the autopsy report, who compared it to portraits of Cromwell, who photograph it and determine that, yes, this is in fact Cromwell's head and then it's donated to his alma mater, Sidney Sussex College in Cambridge and buried in secret.
1: Wow. Oh, God. Oh, there's a reason, geez, a, there's yes. a reason to build a trophy. Uh, you know, that just made Jeremy Bentham's thoughts look like nothing. I know, that's what like I was nothing. thinking about. Right. Yeah. But We would
0: like to thank our guest for the 412 show, Dr. Cat Tracy, Professor of Medieval Literature at Longwood University, who talked to us about English execution and exile. The history bus for today Show were Ed broders and Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROIs, it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9 30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard on soundcloud.com. Just put KALA radio in the search. Click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. ROI is recorded at station KALA St. Ambrose University.